This is the Athletic Football Show. Welcome to the Athletic Football Show. Today is Wednesday, September 8th. I'm Robert Mays. Joining me today is my good friend, Lindsay Jones. Lindsay, how are you? I'm all right. We made it through Labor Day weekend. We're here to week one. Um, and I'm pretty pumped about that. I'm just excited for it to be real football. I'm excited for it to be real football. I'm just not ready. Like, the idea that the season is starting in two days, I'm definitely not ready for that to happen. Oh, I'm ready. It just oh, no, it feels I wild that we're to happen. here. I'm just not ready. I'm, it feels like it has snuck up on me. I feel like I have 10 million more things to do and things to plan and get us ready for Sunday night and all of that stuff. But I'm very excited for it to happen. Yes, absolutely. So uh, let's get into the AFC South. We are doing the AFC South today. Just a bizarre division. Uh, it's just the, even the last couple months of news going on with that, all the Colts injuries, and, and there's just so many things to chew on here. Let's start with the Tennessee Titans, who I think are, I guess, the favorite in this division. You know, obviously the Colts probably have playoff aspirations as well, but with all the injuries that they've dealt with and the Titans success over the last couple of years, I feel comfortable saying that they have the best shot of winning the AFC South as we get going. You know, last off season, the Titans bet big on the success they had in 2019. They paid Ryan Tannehill, they paid Derrick Henry, and they hoped Arthur Smith would kind of make this thing sing all over again. And they were right. They were fourth in offensive DVOA. Their offense was as good as it was the year before when Ryan Tannehill was under center. And that snuck up on some people. And they're really going to try to do this again. You know, the Julio Jones trade kind of sends a message like we're all in. We know we need to do this right now. But I have my concerns about how that's going to go and whether or not they can hit those same heights offensively again. Well, it was almost like they they kind of stumbled into magic when they did this a couple of years ago when Matt LaFleur left and they promoted Arthur Smith from tight ends coach. And who knew that Arthur Smith was going to be a really, really great play caller on his own. And now he's a head coach. Um, and so, you know, we'll see if they can do it again, that this kind of path is going to work where the scheme is the scheme and you have the right pieces in place. Because, you know, how much of Ryan Tannehill's renaissance over the last couple of years was tied specifically to the relationship with Arthur Smith and the play calling and the play design um, and how much of it was Ryan Tannehill and how much of that can persist just within the scheme, just knowing that you have, you know, arguably the best running back in the NFL and Derrick Henry and some ridiculous, uh, ridiculous weapons outside. The hope for them is we keep enough of the component parts together where we can replicate this success. Obviously, the play caller is different with Todd Downing taking over, but most of the staff is the same. You swap out Corey Davis for Julio Jones. You still have AJ Brown. You still have Derrick Henry, the offensive line, which we'll get to, you know, is still a pretty good unit. The downside of it, without Arthur Smith, the way this could potentially go wrong, it's like when you see a band and a couple of the members are still there, but a couple of them aren't, and they still try to tour as the same band. Like the hope is that this doesn't feel like seeing Fleetwood Mac in the nineties, where there's no Stevie Nicks. Or Lindsey Buckingham, and they're still trying to call it Fleetwood Mac. And everyone's like, come on, guys. You're like, just this a is just, Yeah, this is not real. Like, this is not the same. So that's the hope, is even if you take out a couple of these pieces, the final product still feels like the Titans offense that we've seen over the last couple of years. And obviously, that starts with Todd Downing calling plays and a recipe that we know by now, right? They feed Derrick Henry, and they work the play-action game off of it. They were 36% play-action last year tied for just about the league lead, and they were also top five in play-action efficiency last year. It's hard to use it that much and be that good at it 
but the Titans have pushed the boundaries in both of those ways. Should there be anything different? Or do you just feel like we're going to see the same overall formula and approach just with a couple different tweaks here and there? Yeah, I mean, I think they have different personnel this year. And so it would be a mistake to just assume that, um, you know, that you could use Julio Jones the same way that you used Corey Davis. Um, you know, tight end losing Johnny Smith, like, I don't think he had quite as many targets as maybe he's going to get in New England, but he was one of the best red zone weapons. Can you replicate that? without Jonu Smith. So, you know, I want to see them tailor their offense a little bit more to the guys that they have right now. And the other question, and I think we'll get back, we'll get to this a little bit later too, is what is fair to expect out of Derrick Henry to, to just keep putting everything on this guy? The workload that he got, you know, there was that whole idea almost a decade ago when guys were getting a ton of carries that 370 carries was a problem spot. And when you got over that number, guys tended to fall off after that. And we haven't had to talk about that very much in recent years because nobody's gotten that many carries in a season. Nobody runs the ball that much. Running backs are a committee now. Derrick Henry topped that number last year. And the hope is that Derrick Henry is just different. I mean, they, I think they plan on feeding him the same way they did before. And we'll, we'll see if the wheels fall off, but maybe he is just a differently built back. You're, the expectations on him can be different. I don't know if their passing game needs to be more voluminous this year than it has been in years past. But I do think that they may have to lean on Julio Jones and AJ Brown in a way they couldn't, if their running game does stumble in a way that it didn't over the last couple seasons. But you would think though, if there's any team that says, okay, we might have to shift fundamentally who we are and lean our lean on our number one and two receivers. They're in a pretty good shape to do that. That's a pretty good one, two punch. You know, I think we hear a lot of teams like to say that they have the the top receiving core around the league and Tennessee's right up there, right? I mean, they absolutely have to be in that, that conversation for the top five, um, you know, best receiving duos. And they're almost overshadowed a little bit based on exactly how their scheme is built. One of the numbers that I found really interesting when I was researching this. So Ryan Tannehill last year ranked second in the NFL and the percentage of his play action throws that went at least 10 yards in the air. It was 47.9%. It was the second highest rate in the league after Tom Brady. So obviously their play action plays are not just dink and dunk underneath, get the ball in space plays. He ranked 17th though in play action throws that traveled at least 15 yards, which means a huge chunk of what they were doing was in that intermediate 10 to 15 yard range, which makes sense with a guy like Corey Davis and with a guy like AJ Brown who could do so much after the catch with Julio now. Do we see the play action elements of their offense get more vertical because now they have this guy who is one of the scariest vertical push receivers that we've ever seen in the history of the NFL? So just little things like that, like you mentioning the personnel, how it's going to look different. I do know that if Julio can stay healthy, that is a terrifying duo. Like In terms of just what they look like, how intimidating they are just lining up on offense, there's really nobody like it. I said it earlier today. I wish they would have let Julio wear number 11. Like Two is fine. But I just would have liked to see both of them wearing number 11 so they would look as cool as possible together in this offense. Yeah, I mean, because I think we're in agreement, right, that it's the coolest wide receiver number. Oh, yes, there's no doubt. I mean, when you have a guy like Julio who's built like Julio, th- there's no better, no number that looks better on those guys than 11. Well, and it's just a nightmare And as we're going to go through the rest of the division because, you know, so much of this is how do you stock up against your division opponents. It's really hard to think of very many teams in the NFL and certainly in the AFC South that can match up with two receivers like that. I mean, I think there's a pretty significant 
elite cornerback shortage going on in the NFL right now. Um, there certainly is in this division, at least with um, two of the teams that we're going to talk to or talk about in a little while. And that's just a nightmare scenario because most teams don't have one guy that can cover a really big, freakishly fast wide receiver. And the Titans are going to ask you to cover two of them every single snap. So just a couple more things about this offense. You, you mentioned John New Smith is gone. You know They're going to try to use Anthony Ferkser, I assume, in a lot of the ways as a move tight end. Jeff Swaim played 77% of his snaps as a blocker last year. That's what he's going to do again. You know, he's going to be the blocking tight end, I would assume. Ferkser is going to be that receiving option tight end. The one thing about this team that I really didn't appreciate during the season last year is just how banged up their offensive line was. You know, Taylor, DeJuan, Taylor DeJuan missed most of the season. And then they also had injuries to guys like Ty Sambrilos. You had Dennis Kelly starting at right tackle for them the entire year. And then you had a mix of Sambrilo and David Cuisenberry, I want to say, as your other tackle. And they were still one of the best offenses in the NFL. The fact that they were one of the top five most efficient offenses in the league dealing with all of these tackle injury problems, that speaks to how good of a job Arthur Smith did. They had tons of max protect stuff we've talked about that on this show before so now getting luan back and then you have sembrilo and some kind of combination of him and kendall lamb as your right tackle this offensive line should be better this year their second round pick dylan radunes has not quite quite found a role yet he's you know we'll see if he gets folded in over the course of the season but i do think this group can be at least better than it was last year which when we're talking about a top five offense is pretty promising they do have, as we're heading into week one, they do have some COVID questions yes. on the offensive line. Um, two of their starters are still on the COVID list as we are recording this. I think there's a chance that they could get both of those guys back by week one, but uh, it's going to be an issue, and especially an offensive line that maybe doesn't have a ton of depth. Um, you know, if they're healthy, should be a good group, but you know, always something to watch. The two guys that are on the COVID list still right now, center Ben Jones and right guard Nate Davis. Can you tell me without looking who the Titans' backup quarterback is? Okay, this is not fair because I did look it up, but I had to think really, really hard before I looked it up. But it's some guy named Logan Woodside. Some guy named Logan Woodside yeah. is his full yeah. name. I just there. I understand that it's hard to if you're starting quarterback, it's hurt. You're probably screwed anyway. But I I don't know much about Logan Woodside, and I I mean you could have given totally me like seventy seven guesses without using Google, and I would not have guessed Logan Woodside. I would have guessed Case Cookus. I think Case Cookus. I think even with the concerns about the play calling and not concerns, but just obviously uncertainty questions uh, about Todd Downing coming in, this offense still has the pieces to be pretty good. The defense is where this team needed to do a lot of its work, and that starts with the secondary. To me, you know, they had a ton of turnover on the back end of their defense from last season. Adoree Jackson is gone. Malcolm Butler is gone. They went out and they picked Caleb Farley in the first round. It looks like he's going to be on the path to be physically ready by week one, but they're not going to throw him in immediately. So you're looking at some combination of Christian Fulton and Janoris Jenkins on the outside with Elijah Molden, who's looked awesome in the preseason, in the slot for them. So I think the hope is with Farley working his way in there, and then we'll see what happens with those other roles. Maybe you get four workable corners at some point in the year to go along with Amarni Hooker and Kevin Byard. And with that, you could feel okay about that secondary. I mean, a ton of changeover, but they spent a lot of resources on it to try to turn that thing around over the course of a year. Yeah, and sometimes turnover isn't bad. I mean, you you, you can no, say that we're in all. some places, and it, it clearly was needed, but it is a lot of change all at once. And, you know, the Farley pick, it's such like a 
high risk, high reward kind of pick because they invested a lot there and they got nothing out of their first round pick a year ago, which we didn't talk about when we were talking about the offensive line. Um, it was just a completely wasted pick guys completely off the roster. So I was a little surprised that this year, uh, when they had their first round pick again, they took a guy who had questions, you know, Caleb Farley had the back injury. He opted out, um, from Virginia tech last year. So it's been a really long time, time since he played and he was hurt coming into the draft. So, you know, super high upside, so athletic, you, you just, you know, you love all of his traits, but they just haven't gotten to see it yet. So it makes sense to bring him along kind of really slowly. Um, but it is it is not a pick that's completely safe. There are a lot of teams that made much safer moves with their first-round picks. I think it speaks to them understanding they need to do this right now. I mean, it's a massive hole on the roster, and it's a swing we're taking because they've got a couple years to make this happen. And they're trying to get that defense workable as soon as they possibly can. So if you're making high-risk moves, I think it, it makes sense when you're considering their roster construction. It's the same way as same thing as t- trading for Julio Jones. It's a risky thing to do, but you need to make risky moves when your window is right now, which for them it is. Yeah, absolutely. So when you look at the rest of their secondary, how do you feel about their their safeties and what Kevin Bayard might be able to do now? I mean, I think that he's a good player. He's been a good player. So if you have, I mean, they don't have a ton of depth at that spot, but that's why hopefully you can get a bunch of corners on the field in a couple of different packages. I mean, this team played man about half the time last year, and that's what Caleb Farley can do really well for you. So if you can get him out there as an outside corner at some point during the season with Janoris Jenkins, and you have Fulton and Molden, and then you have those two safeties, that's where you hope the improvements come. They get Jayon Brown back this year, a linebacker, after missing him for a good chunk of last year. So, you know, Rashawn Evans is in a big season. So you're hoping that the back seven is much better than it was a year ago. The front, to me, is more of a question mark. Yes. You know, they were 31st in pressure rate last season. They went out and signed Bud Dupree to a huge contract. This is what free agency is. It's paying a guy like Bud Dupree, who's the third or fourth best player in his own defensive front, the same amount of money that Shaq Barrett got from the Bucks. Is pretty much the same contract with the same amount of guarantees. So you're paying that guy to be a true number one pass rusher, and you're pairing him with Jeffrey Simmons and Danico Autry, another free agent signing, and saying, All right, this is what we got. Like, we need to be a lot better than we were a year ago. And I don't know how much better it's going to be. You know, Dupree is better than what they had, but again, I still think it's a premium price for a pretty good player. And in my mind, the back seven of their defense is going to be what needs to carry this group. I like Jeffrey Simmons, but I yeah. still think there are questions about how that entire group fits together up front. Yeah. I mean, we need to talk about how Bud Dupree had a torn ACL in week 12 yes. last year. And he I still mean, got that contract. So yeah, free agency. Um, not all that it's cracked up to me. Um, but I, I love Jeffrey Simmons. Um, I just did my all under 25 team last week. And he was a guy that had a really hard time leaving him off of the first team. Um, but yeah, I love him. He's kind of a game wrecking defensive tackle. But unless you're the Los Angeles Rams, there's not a ton of teams that can really build their pressure packages around an interior defensive lineman. So they have to get more pressure there. And you know, this is one area where John Robinson has been swinging, right? He's taking swing after swing after swing to try they to trade find... Up, they traded up for Harold Landry. I mean, they've really tried it and they signed to Devian Clowney every Vic single Beasley, year. And that was yep. a complete bust. So, you know, this is just him taking a couple more swings. It was a big one with Bud Dupree, um, but it's they, they need this one to hit. And he keeps talking like 
he's going to be ready and that they think that he's going to be able to play week one. Um, but we just don't know. I mean, it's that's a really quick turnaround from from an ACL. And, you know, they need a lot of production out of him, but we probably should all temper our expectations a little bit, especially as he as he gets eased back in. I have questions about how good this defense can be after last year. But based on who was available and the resources they had and the timeline that they're on, I get why they moved, made every move that they did, right? Like Bud Dupree, even if I think it's a lot of money for Bud Dupree, I understand it. And if you look at the way that the guys that were available, even in the draft, right? Like in the first round of the draft, there weren't many edge rushers that people thought were instant difference makers. And they went out and they got a corner instead. But I still have questions about whether they can put all of this together. You know, Mike Vrabel has not done a great job as the overseer of defenses when he's gotten the chance to do it, both in Houston and last year with the with the Titans. Shane Bowen has been elevated their defensive coordinator. It was an objectively bad unit last year. So I do think that they're better and hopefully they'll be healthier. I just don't know what the ceiling is on this group. You know, if they have a dip on offense where you go from being the fourth best offense in the league to the 10th best offense in the league and their defense is still below average, where does that leave you in the grand scheme of the AFC? Because they made moves, whether it's the Julio trade or the Farley trade or how they spent in free agency to be a contender right now. Like they know it's right now. And I just don't know overall what the ceiling of this group is even after all of those additions and changes. Yeah, and that's the big question, like kind of the big fundamental who are you question about the Titans. Because I think even if they do take a little step back on offense, like you suggested, could, you know, could be possible. We laid out a bunch of the reasons why. And if they're a middle of the pack, maybe even, you know, 15th to 20th type of defense, I still think that can win you to the division or it puts you in week 17 and 18 real close with the Colts. But I still think it's a pretty, it, that would leave you a gap between the Chiefs the Bills, the Browns, maybe a couple of the, the Ravens, a couple of the other elite teams in the AFC. And, and that's a try, you know, that's a problem. I think if you're the Titans, when you have, as you said, kind of tried to go all in and say that we have a pretty short window to win now, if there is still that gap between you and the teams that are actually capable of going to the Super Bowl. So what's the path for them to be more than that then? What's the path for them to be a team that can actually compete with the Chiefs and the Bills and some of the other teams that we consider the cream of the AFC? I think all these defensive moves have to pay off. I mean, I think Bud Dupree needs to be a 10 to 15 sack kind of guy. They need to consistently increase their pressure rate. Those cornerback moves that they made, they need to hit. Caleb Farley needs to be a star. He needs to become a significant contributor. So I think that's where it is. I mean, I, I think offensively, even if they're you know, not quite as good as they were last year, they're still going to be a really good offense. They're going to score a lot of points. I think they're going to win in close situations because Derrick Henry gives you a gazillion and a half options, but if they can, uh, but defensive is just where it all turns. And if they can make a leap to being one of the mid tier defenses in the league, a team that actually can close out games with pass rush, if they need to, um, I think that'll make the difference to being, you know, I don't know if they would, if that would make them the favorite all of a sudden, like I would pick them in an AFC championship game against the chiefs, but I would feel a lot better about it if we got to the playoffs and we saw a team that could continue uh, consistently get after the quarterback, those sorts of things. I think that's right. I just feel like they could be a, a pretty good team and maybe the best team in the AFC South, but it's just hard for me to see the path to them being like one of those teams. And it's just because I think that the defense just has so far to go. And I just don't know if they can go that far in a single off season. All right. 
one guy that you cannot wait to watch on the Titans this year. All right. So we already talked a little bit about Derrick Henry and it's Derrick Henry, which it's hard to necessarily pick out, you know, a guy who just rushed for 2000 yards. But one, he is a gif viral machine, right? I mean, you have to if you if you take your eyes off of him, you're going to miss like the ridiculous stiff arm or whatever. But I am really interested in what his production is going to be like. You know, he's trying to do something that's never been done before in terms of, um, you know, repeating as a 2000 yard rusher. Now he has 17 games to try to do it. But every guy who has had that sort of workload before and that sort of production before has had some sort of pretty significant drop off the following season. And um, so, yeah, he's they're trying to do something with him that just isn't done in the modern NFL. So I'm watching him because one, he's awesome. And two, I just want to see how it's going to work. I'm sticking in the really good players are really good camp here and going with AJ Brown. I, I know I'm not saying anything that and people don't know. AJ Brown is an incredible player and, and I think has a chance to be even better than he's been in the past. By the end of last season, I thought that he had made real strides in every aspect of being a receiver. And, you know, I went around to a bunch of different training camps over all of August. And I talked to a lot of different coaches and different stops. And he's a name that came up a bunch, just talking to play callers and, and offensive coordinators in other spots where I would mention his name or they, we would be talking about something. We'll be like, well, AJ Brown and people just love watching him. I mean, he's just one of those guys that other offensive coaches, they watch what he can do for the Titans offense. And they wish they had an AJ Brown just to fold into what they're trying to do. The fact that you can just run a little six-yard glance route to him and have him take it 50 yards is just a luxury that so few offensive coaches in the NFL have, and that's what the Titans have. And that's why I feel like even if there are concerns about the play calling and what it's going to look like and the changeover in that spot, the talent is so good that I'm still inclined to think, even if it doesn't fit all together right from the start, I still think this could be, you know, a top eight offense based on the pure amount of talent that they have. All right. Your biggest X factor on the Titans. All right. We don't need to spend a ton of time on him because we already did. But I think it's Bud Dupree. The money that they spent, the lack of consistent pass rush that they had previously. um, He's going to dictate so much of what they do. And if if he can consistently generate some pressure, it's going to make everything easier for everybody on the back end. So, um I don't want to say that like John Robinson can't afford to like have another miss at pass rusher, but because he's taken a lot of swings here and this one really, really, really needs to pay off. I'm going with Kale Farley. I just think, again, you're talking about risks and, and them throwing out dice rolls. He's another one. And if he can be a real true top corner by the end of the season, midway through the year, it doesn't have to be right away. But if they bring him along and he can just be a huge influence on that defense by the time playoff time rolls around and they have to go against some of these offenses, I think that could just go such a long way. If you have him as your number one corner and Janoris Jenkins can truly be your number two corner and Molden comes along as your slot guy and that secondary just comes together over the course of the year, maybe they can take enough strides on defense to where they can compete with some of those teams. All right, let's get to the Indianapolis Colts. Really only one place to start here. This this team traded for Carson Wentz. The Carson Wentz era is here in Indianapolis. They traded multiple picks, potentially a first rounder next year if he plays 75% of the snaps for Carson Wentz to step in as their starter. Uh, Spoiler alert, if you guys read TheAthletic.com, I'll be writing about this uh, tomorrow, just about why they did this and what the plan is for Carson Wentz and how they think they can get the most out of him. I talked to 
pretty much every member of the Colts offensive coaching staff, <laughs> Frank Reich, the offensive coordinator, Marcus Brady, the quarterbacks coach, Scott Milanovic, their passing game coordinator, Press Taylor. They believe that they can get a different version of Carson Wentz than the guy we saw in 2020. You know, they think that that is an outlier and that what, who Carson Wentz was not necessarily in 2017, but who he was at the end of 2019. When the Eagles went on that little late season run and he was playing well and had to play well for them to keep winning, Frank Reich told me, and this line stuck with me, he said, it took our staff some perspective to, to, to put 2020 in perspective in the context of his entire career. And that's what they're betting on. They're betting on Carson Wentz's familiarity with Frank Reich and his familiarity with that offense to turn him into a different guy than he was at the end of last year. I don't know if that's going to work. But that is their plan as it stands right now. Well, and what's so wild about it is if he had taken every single snap of training camp and played in all three preseason games, we would be having the same discussion as this is the big question and the only conversation that matters when you're talking about the Indianapolis Colts. And instead, he has practiced two times heading into week one. He should get a full week of practice and all of the first team reps in the three practices leading into week one against the Seahawks. But until then, he has practiced two times. So all of these questions are just amplified by the fact that they've had so little time actually on the field together. And, you know, as much as, you know, the guys who cover the Colts daily have said he, Carson Wentz has looked good when they've seen him out there, whether it was seven on sevens or, you know, you have to look all the way back to July or the one day that he was able to practice after coming off of the COVID list. That's still such a small sample size that we don't we don't really know. We haven't seen him face a live pass rush yet. We haven't seen what he's going to look like behind, you know, this kind of retooled offensive line. You know, we don't look we, we just don't know any of these things yet. And it's just so wild to me that um you know, this guy who had so much riding on him. I mean, Carson Wentz, his his career is riding on what's going to happen this year. Because if this doesn't work, you know, if it doesn't work when he's back with Frank Reich, the guy who, like, knows him, loves him, believes in him, I don't know where else it would work. So for a guy to be in, under, in this sort of circumstance, to have that sort of training camp that he had with a foot surgery and a COVID high-risk exposure, that's massive. Yeah, and there's so many different things they've tried to work on to get him comfortable and to make him feel like everything was in tune. You know, he was in tune with the timing of certain plays. He was in tune with his mechanics and all those things are fragile. I mean, they th can start to devolve very quickly when the games actually start and getting less time with all of that. I agree. Uh, it's definitely cause for concern. An argument, though, for why he could be better in this situation beyond his connection with Frank Reich and beyond his comfort level is that the pieces around him are better than they were in Philadelphia. And that obviously starts with the offensive line. That argument seemed to go sideways when Quentin Nelson hurt his foot in the same way that Carson Wentz did. But it does look like that group may be together and fully healthy sooner rather than later. Eric Fisher is out with COVID right now, but he was ramping up to practice last week. And it looks like he could be in the lineup in a couple of weeks. So now you're looking at potentially like a top five offensive line if Fisher can get back there for most of the season. And I think that could go a long, long way in kind of accelerating how comfortable Carson Wentz feels back there. Yeah, absolutely. And you know, that group has had a lot of issues as well. Quentin Nelson with the foot surgery, like you mentioned. They've also had multiple COVID issues. Ryan Kelly, 
was also on the COVID list at the same time as Carson Wentz was. Quentin Nelson has been on the COVID list. Eric Fisher, um, in addition to recovering from uh, a torn Achilles tendon that he suffered um, in the playoffs last year. You know, there, there's a lot. There's a lot going on there where, you know, I don't want to say you have to squint, right, to steal one of, you know, Nate Tice's favorite phrases. I don't think you have to squint to see how that offensive line could be good. But you also could just like shift the lens a little bit and you could see how, ooh, this, you know, it could fall apart given how kind of fragile the situation is where there's so many guys coming back from something. I think you could do that with the entire offense. You could do that with the entire Colts team at this point because there's so many different things that have gone wrong over the first month of this experiment here, right? We'll talk about the when stuff. We'll see how Quentin Nelson looks and feels coming back from that foot surgery. T.Y. Hilton's already gone. He's going to be gone for a couple months potentially with a neck injury. So now your receiving core is some combination of Michael Pittman and Zach Paschal and the return of Paris Campbell. Paris Campbell is another sliding doors guy where maybe he gives you a dynamic element that you've been missing over the last couple of years in the passing game. Maybe he plays two games again and is out for the rest of the season. It just feels like the range of outcomes for this Colts team is so, so wide. Like if you told me they won 11 games and the AFC South and Wentz looked like 2019 Carson Wentz again, and Michael Pittman ascended, and Jonathan Taylor was the best back in the league, and they had this really nice offensive line, and Kylan Grayson, or I, I would say I keep saying Kylan Grayson, Kylan Granson, their fourth round tight end, is justified all of the love that Frank Reich has for him, and he's a nice piece. I would buy it. I'd be like, okay, I could see where all of that came into fell into place, and this team was really good offensively. I could also see it going the entire other way where Fisher is not available or gets hurt again or just isn't the same guy. They have no receiving options with Hilton and the lack of investments they made in that group before the season. That is also possible. I I just could believe any single thing about this team and this offense at this point because anything has been on the table for them over the last six weeks or so. Oh, yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think that's totally fair. And that's what makes this division so wild because we were kind of saying the same things about the Titans. I think the other two teams that we're going to get to probably not quite as um, high upside, but this team for sure. Um, But what's crazy is that like, if all of those things that you laid out go right, I mean, I don't know if they're a Super Bowl contender, but they're really there. They'd be a really, really good team because we're about to talk about the defense and their defense is set up really, really well. So if all of those things on offense break, right, if, everything works. Those guys are all healthy. T.Y. Hilton comes back. Then we're talking about a team that should be in that conversation with the Browns and the Bills and the Ravens for making it to the AFC championship game, right? I wonder if that's true. I I wonder if they have that ceiling offensively, even if Carson Wentz is good. It feels to me like they're still a year away. And the difference between them and a team like the Titans, the Titans are scrambling for cap space at every possible turn here. I mean, they converted Julio's salary. They converted Ryan Tannehill's salary earlier in the year. They're really pushing this thing in. The Colts should have some financial wiggle room next year, even after the moves that they've made. If Carson Wentz feels like the guy, all right, now we really push our chips into the middle of the table. I think their aspirations in 2021 are different. I really do. I think the Titans have understood we need to do this now if we're going to do it. And I think the Colts know we're still going to have a place to go next spring if this group comes together, if that makes sense. No, it, d- it definitely makes sense. But I think sometimes the teams that make that 
that leap are the teams that are, are are feeling that oh maybe they're a year away, and that maybe you know they have they have a lot of the pieces, and it's just gone so wrong so far. Like I think it would be easier probably to list the things that went well during training camp. And we'll talk about that on defense because I think there's some things that have gone well so far on defense. There's pieces to like on that side. Um, but you you just think that at some point that luck has to change, right? And things just have to kind of settle down. I hope so for Zach Kiefer and Stephen Holder's sake, at least I hope it settles down. One more note on the running backs. I think that group has a chance to be so, so good. I mean, Heem Hines might be the best ca- pass catching back in the entire league. We know that. And then over the second half of last season, Jonathan Taylor was incredible. Over the second half of the year, he was eighth among 50 qualified backs in yards after contact per attempt. And I think a lot of that was how comfortable he got rushing out of the shotgun. The first eight weeks of the year, he was averaging four yards per attempt on 52 shotgun runs. From weeks nine through 17, he was at 7.59 yards per carry, which was the best mark in the entire league. And obviously, Running from the shotgun is different than what he did a lot of for a lot of his career at Wisconsin. So it made sense that he would get a little bit more comfortable there. I think that duo has a chance to be really, really dangerous from the get-go. And probably super frustrating from a fantasy football perspective. That's I, I was gonna get into that. I don't know how good Jonathan Taylor will be in fantasy football as Naheem Hines catches, I don't know, 70 passes this year. But those two together, if you can just put them into one running back, I think has a chance to be one of the best backfields in the NFL. Why don't they play? Why don't we not play fantasy football this way? It drives me crazy. I know this is a separate, this is not a fantasy football pod, but can we just do it that way instead? You got to read into it. That's the whole thing. That's the challenge of it. All right. Let's talk about the defense. You mentioned that there are some good things happening on that side of the ball, which is a lot different than what's happening on offense. They were seven in the defensive DVOA last year. This thing starts with the front four. They had more dropbacks. They faced more dropbacks with four pass rushers than any team in the NFL last season. They rush forward about 83% of their snaps, which is the third highest rate in the league. They need that group to get after people. And that starts with DeForest Buckner, obviously. He was seventh in pressures among interior defensive linemen last week, last season, according to PFF. Now, what does the rest of it look like? And so far, the reports on Quiddy Pay out of training camp and what he has been for them, he's going to start from day one at defensive end, and he looks like he is ready to go. So if you have those two guys, and maybe a Taekwon Lewis and Kamiko Torre stay a little bit healthier, can this group be like a dominant, not dominant, can they be like a really, really good front four? And what does that mean for their defense? Because I think that's the biggest question. Yeah, I mean, it all starts with DeForest Buckner. And make sure you read Stephen Holder's story um, on The Athletic this week about just DeForest Buckner destroying people um, and the way that teams are you know, really shifting everything to him, probably outside of Aaron Donald. I don't know if there's another single kind of interior defensive lineman who commands as much like singular attention as DeForest Buckner does. And that enables the Colts, I think, to kind of get pressure with like, it's, it's you know, they've invested there a little bit. It's not, but it's not like they've used a ton of first round picks until they went and got Quiddy Pay this year, but it's not like previous years they were, you know, using high draft capital there or, you know, going out and spending a ton of free uh, free agency money there. Their second round picks have not worked out very well. They spent a couple second round picks on those spots that have not worked out really well, but that's what happens when you have a bunch of dice rolls is that hopefully even if you miss on a couple of those guys, it still works out. And I think that if pay is really good from the start, and they can have a situation where you know they move Tyquan Lewis because Grover Stewart doesn't really play on third down. So you move Tyquan Lewis inside, you bring in Torrey, you have those four guys 
in your pass rush package, if those guys can stay healthy, what does that look like? That to me is a big, big question for how far this defense can go. Yeah, absolutely. And like, can they be good enough? Like we don't need, we don't need each of those guys to be 10 sack kind of guys, but can they be four, five, six sack guys? Can they increase their pressure rate? Those sorts of things that'll, you know, that'll help because they do have really good linebackers. The back end is pretty decent. So oh, that, that's, I mean, we know, we know the linebackers, right? Like D- Darius Leonard is one of the best players at his position in the NFL. He just got paid like it. Bobby Ukarike is te- stepping into kind of a bigger role than Anthony, now that Anthony Walker is gone. To me, personnel wise, the secondary might be the biggest question just because the left corner, they're still figuring out who's going to even start over there. Rocky Sin right now is penciled in at that spot because TJ Carey has been hurt. You know, Xavier Rhodes played well last year, but he's a little bit older. This is a zone, zone heavy defense. They were 80% zone last year, which was the fifth highest mark in the league. So you don't need those really sticky man corners in the way that you might with another scheme. But I still think that second cornerback spot is something to watch, even if you feel good about the rest of the secondary. Yeah, Xavier Rhodes is such an interesting case because we saw him be really, really good in Minnesota. We saw him be unplayable in Minnesota and had a really nice bounce back year, but he's been kind of so all over the place that it's hard to know exactly what we're going to get out of him. And if the other cornerback position is a question mark because of injuries, it is potentially a liability. I mean, you could say, okay, you you could see through the lens that this would be a solid group. If, um, if TJ Carey is healthy, then you have a little bit of depth there, but it is a high variance group, I guess is what I'm saying. So one more thing to note here, obviously some changes on the coaching staff. Nick Sirianni is the head coach of the Eagles. So he he's out as the offensive coordinator. It's kind of one of those things though. It's like the chiefs when your head coach is the most important offensive voice in your building, it allows you to kind of sustain this stuff. Even if you lose people and Frank Reich is the guy on that offense, which is helpful. Marcus Brady has now been elevated to their offensive coordinator spot. And they also lost Jonathan Gannon, their defensive backs coach. He's the defensive coordinator in Philadelphia now. And if you think about how well and how fast that group has played over the last couple of years, just something to think about. I mean, we see this all the time with brain drain on staffs that have done a really good job. And how do teams deal with that? I mean, the Rams every single year seem to lose a coordinator here, a position coach there, and they've been able to sustain success, but, and the chiefs are the same way, but it can be challenging when you have that sort of turnover, especially for an offense that is trying to fold in a new quarterback all of those kind of considerations. All right. Who is one guy you cannot wait to watch on the Colts this year? Because I think I know who you're going to pick. Um, I'm going to take Michael Pittman Jr. Um, and one, because he's I covered his dad, so it makes me feel incredibly old. Um, but they just need him to have a breakout season. They need him to be a true number one receiver. And you look at him, and he looks the part. So now he just needs to kind of be that guy and he's going to have a lot of opportunities um, with T.Y. out. So I just want to see, can he be that guy? I mean, he has it in him. I think he has it in him. So he's the guy that I'm picking. I'm curious how he's going to be used this year, because if you look at a lot of the damage he did last season, it was on crossers, them getting him the ball with a lot of room to work. I mean, that was a huge part of that offense. Now with Carson Wentz, do we see him more as a vertical target and kind of a contested catch guy outside the numbers the same way he was a little bit at USC? I mean, Michael Pittman Jr. averaged 8.5 air yards per target last season. The guys in that range, let, let, let's look at this. Tyler Boyd, Tyler Eifert, Dammy, Danny Amendola, Jordan Reed, Hunter Henry. I mean, that is an underneath option. That's not what he necessarily was in college. 
So if you can combine that kind of slasher ability he has on those crossers and after the catch with maybe more of a downfield presence, I think that's definitely going to be something to watch. Yeah. And those and those downfield routes are going to be there for him because the T.Y. out for who knows how long because he just had back surgery. And that's an element that Carson Wentz brings that Philip Rivers just didn't last year. You know, I never going to hear me say a bad word about Philip Rivers, but at this stage of their careers, Carson Wentz is able to push down the field a little bit more than Philip Rivers does. All right. My guy's Quiddy Pay. I mean, I just his physical talent is undeniable. The way that he was used in Michigan and kind of that read and react type of defense. There's going to be no reading and reacting here. He's going to get to pin his ears back and go and to see him just be a fully unleashed pass rusher. I'm very excited about it. They're very excited about him. So if he can be that guy for them, if he can give them a true number one edge presence in the way they didn't have last year, you know, Justin Houston was fine, but Justin Houston near getting near the end, they did not have that guy last season. And I think that could go a long way if he's like an above average to good starter right away. All right. Biggest X factor on the Colts. I mean, it's to me, it's one guy. I don't even know if there's anywhere else to go. I Well, I'll go somewhere else. But yeah, go t- tell us more about Carson. They bet their future on Carson Wentz. He was one of arguably the worst starting quarterback in the NFL last season. And it's an unbelievable risk. And Frank Reich believes in Carson Wentz. I mean, that that has driven this entire thing. And we're going to find out if Frank Reich's belief in Carson Wentz is justified. I mean, if he can be the guy that we've seen earlier in his career, again, not the MVP candidate he was, but the above average quarterback that he was, how good can this offense be? Everything is going to be made or broken on what Carson Wentz is as a quarterback for the Colts this year. All right. So here's my X factor. And I'm sorry to do this, but it is COVID. There are a few teams in the league that could be impacted by COVID and vaccination status more than the Indianapolis Colts. It has already happened in the preseason. They are, we don't have the exact numbers, the preseason I've been working, or for the regular season rosters, I've been working on trying to get these, but they are going to be one of the lowest, if not the lowest vaccinated team in the NFL. And uh, Zach Kiefer, one of our Colts writers wrote this week that he believes half of the starting offense is unvaccinated. So if there's a team that could have an oh shit issue where you have a bunch of guys ruled out, a position group, the quarterback room, uh, maybe not the quarterback, but some of their backups are vaccinated, but your starting quarterback, this is the team where it could become a major issue. It already has been an issue. And, um, you know, it's unfortunate that we have to talk, talk about that, but it is a reality that some teams are going to have to deal with. And, the Colts are going to have to probably deal with it more so than others. I just can't imagine what the last like month and a half have been like for Frank Reich and Chris Ballard. Just waking up to a different disaster every single morning, your phone just melting before you even get out of bed. It's one thing after another. I mean, it's been an eventful summer for both of those guys. I just hope for their sakes it calms down a little bit and they can just like get one night of sleep. All right. Let's get to the Jacksonville Jaguars. I mean, here we go. Welcome to the Urban Meyer experience featuring Trevor Lawrence. And you and I have both talked about the situation in Jacksonville a few different times this summer, and we were both down there. It feels like if this was happening anywhere but Jacksonville, if Urban Meyer was the coach and Trevor Lawrence was the quarterback, we'd be hearing about it every single day. And that's not like a shot at Jacksonville. It's more of a comment on how Jags coverage is not going to make its way into the mainstream conversation no matter what is happening, but it is an undeniably intriguing thing going on down there. We have like a once in a generation quarterback prospect and one of the more successful college football coaches of the last two decades 
pairing up in a pretty fascinating way. Uh, oh, absolutely. And, you know, look, it's kind of like a Florida man situation. And maybe it's just because Urban is so connected to that area of Florida already, given his ties to the University of Florida, that it's, maybe it's just covered differently or discussed differently because more people there know Urban. It's actually crazy how many guys who are on the Jaguars beat who actually used to be on the University of Florida beat. So these are guys that like have known Urban a long time, kind of like know the urbanism. So it doesn't seem maybe quite as strange as it would if you know, it was all of a sudden you were dropped into the Seattle Seahawks or the, well, Seattle's a bad example <laughs> because they dropped Pete Carroll <laughs> into the Seattle Seahawks, but I don't know, like the New York Giants or something. Um, you know, and Andy Staples, who has been covering the Jaguars for us, has covered college football forever and lives in Gainesville. So he's much more accustomed to kind of the Urban Meyer thing than if it had been basically any of our other NFL writers. So it is a really interesting situation. But I just think from like a pure like football offensive standpoint, it's going to be really interesting because I, you know, I don't know about you, but I haven't been like excited about anything that I've seen out of the Jaguars offense thus far in the preseason. I think Lawrence has looked fine. I mean, obviously, there have been some issues, the very publicized, nationally televised concerns against the Saints, but that was Walker Little in there playing against Marcus Davenport. You have a rookie left tackle who's not going to start for you playing against a guy in his, I think, third season, fourth season, can't remember with Marcus Davenport, but a guy who looks really, really good right now. I mean, that's okay. I was talking to a head coach yesterday about the preseason and just discussing you know, how teams looked and how teams didn't. And he was like, we showed nothing. We, we did absolutely nothing that we're going to do over the course of the regular season. So if you look like garbage in the preseason as an offense, there was another play caller I was talking to a couple weeks ago that was telling me he literally doesn't use motion and certain formations to get his guys easy releases so he could see what they have to look like when they're playing against press coverage without any help. I mean, that's what the preseason is for. So this idea that the Jags offense just hasn't looked very good, that's okay. Like I think that the component parts of the Jags offense with the guys they brought in to run it with Trevor Lawrence, with this offensive line and with this receiving core, when the real games start and you're trying to win, you're doing everything you can to win and throwing everything you can at opposing defenses, I still think it can look okay. I mean, do you think, though, that they're going to do the right things by Trevor Lawrence, that this is the right scheme, the right staff, the right skilled position players around him, the right linemen to not mess, not mess this up for a generational quarterback talent? I think when you have the first overall pick and when you have the worst team in the NFL, you can do a lot worse than what the Jags are putting in front of Trevor Lawrence and around Trevor Lawrence right now. Daryl Bevel is an establishment offensive coordinator. Brian Schottenheimer has been around for much longer than I've been doing this. They may not be the most exciting names in the world, but I think that the offensive plan they've had in places like Seattle and Bevel had in a place like Detroit, where you're going to be able, you're going to try to run the ball. You're going to use a bunch of play action and use that as a way to kind of insulate your young quarterback. I think that makes sense. I'm curious how much Clemson stuff they'll fold in early to make Lawrence comfortable. And maybe they didn't show a lot of that in the preseason, but are they going to fold that in during the regular season? And then the line I think is fine. You know, it's not a great line, but it's not a terrible line. You bring back your offensive line coach. You have all five starters from last year. And I think that the receiving pieces make sense. You know, it sucks to lose Travis Etienne before the season starts, but the combination of Chenault and Marvin Jones 
and DJ Chark, I think, makes sense together. You know, Chanel is that. We can just pitch it out to him. Let's see what he can do with it type of guy. Marvin Jones knows this offense. He's a big-bodied, contested catch guy down the field. I do think it makes sense. And I also, you know, their starting tight end on this team is Chris Manhurts. That There are going to be a lot of six-man protections in this with this offense. I think they're going to try to insulate him as often as possible, give him space to work with some more six-man protection, some more play action. It's not the sexiest plan ever, what they've tried to do here, but I do think for a rookie quarterback, a lot of it makes sense, and a lot of it is going to set him up, if not to succeed, then not to fail, which I think is important. I remember leaving Jags camp in August thinking, this offense could be a little fun. Like, I kind of like those players. Uh, This offensive line might be decent. But I still just like, I want to see it, you know? And look, they they get to play the Texans week one. So that'll be a dumpster fire that I'm going to watch. Uh (laughs) It's so bad. It's so, so bad. I, I will relegate that to like a small... One quarter of the one TV that has five games on it, I will put the Jags-Texans game on. Yeah, I mean, I haven't looked at the exact lineup of the games, but I'm going to assume that that's like a one o'clock Eastern game when there's 12 other games going. But I like to watch drama. So I will at some point flip over. I'll put it in the eight box just to 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 get I'll, I'll be curious a little bit because I'm, I'm curious about Trevor Lawrence um, and I, I want to see. I want to see what it's going to look like. I mean, I I want to believe that. Daryl Bevel and Brian Schottenheimer were like doing that thing where they were holding stuff back. But I, I just, I don't know. I, I don't know if they were holding anything back or if they're just holding Trevor Lawrence back. I think it'll be fine. I don't think it's the most exciting pairing in the world, but I do think it's going to be fine. I, I think Trevor Lawrence is going to be just fine early on. And that's all you really want from a young quarterback, I think, is let's not ruin him. Let's just give him enough to work with at the start and see where we're going here. I think that is what... <laughs> The Jaguars have done here. I I am totally fine with the plan overall. All right. Let's get to the defense. What a weird group. (laughs) What what a a strange group of players. When you have more cap space than any other team in the NFL, not the trio I expected them to come away with, but I, I guess it works for whatever their plan is. I don't know what to expect from this defense overall. They bring in Joe Cullen as their defensive coordinator from Baltimore, where they lived in man coverage and blitzed all the time. Urban Meyer's background seems to align with that. I don't know if they have the corners to run that type of defense. I don't know how much they're going to blitz. I don't know what to expect out of Josh Allen, who was hurt for half of last season. What is Chase on in his second year? It's just an endless stream of question marks. And I don't even mean that in a good or bad way. I just don't know what to expect from this group overall. And I think that's totally fair. Um, You know, every time you heard Urban Meyer talk in the off season, you know, talking about his vision and who he wanted his team to be, talk about how fast they're going to be and how tough they're going to be. And no, the the speed thing, he always comes down to speed. And I'm like, where, where is it? You look up and down that roster and it's like that, that group, like, you know, I like, I I like Josh Allen as a pass rusher, but I don't love Josh Allen as a pass rusher. You know, I like Shaq Griffin as a corner, but I don't love him. CJ Henderson has been a mess. I mean, he's been one of the biggest question marks or first round pick from a year ago at cornerback. Um, so just more questions, I think, than they have than they have answers on that defense. And you know, where you can look on the offense and you can see, like, oh, that that could be fun. That could be a decent group. It's hard to pick out any position group on the defense and say, like, oh, that's intriguing, or 
you know, those guys could could be really fun to watch. I just don't I just don't see it. I think your hope on defense is you're healthier than you were a year ago, right? Like CJ Henderson misses half the year. Trey Herndon is getting a ton of snaps for them at corner. If Tyson Campbell come, can come in their second round pick and be their third corner from the start, you know, Trey Herndon doesn't even have a spot in, in nickel packages. And those are the types of incremental gains you're trying to make defensively. And health was a concern for them. You know, that was part of the, I think if you're building this team, that was one of the more frustrating parts of last season is, you know, Josh Allen's in his second year, CJ Henderson's a rookie and you miss both of them for half the season. Because when you're in full-scale rebuilding mode, all that really matters is the success of your young players and their development. And it feels like they had to press pause on that at a few key spots last year. Even a guy like DJ Chark taking a small step back. And that, to me, is the biggest thing. On defense, but overall, you know, can those younger players, can Andre Sisco step in and play safety next to Rayshon Jenkins? Can Campbell be a starting caliber corner over the course of his rookie year? What do you get out of Shaq Griffin? And can he be like a nice piece for you as you rebuild this entire thing? That's where they need to get. I mean, the ambitions they should have on defense are let's try to assemble some long-term building blocks here, not let's try to be a top 10 defense, because that's just not going to happen with this group. And that's going to be hard for Urban Meyer, I think, because everywhere he's been, and while he was, you know, he was an offensive-minded guy, you know, coming up through his coaching career, um, a lot of his really good teams have had elite defensive talent up and down those rosters, just first round pick after first round pick. And he was a hell of a recruiter for defensive talent. And he's probably looking at this group going, yikes. I mean, there's a couple of guys that they drafted that he recruited at one point and didn't get at Ohio State. But um, yeah, it's it's not great. And I just every time I see Miles Jack around, I think I picture that uh, the Fresh Prince gif, right? I mean, that's who he is now. Just just lost because this is unrecognizable. I mean, it was only just a few years ago that, you know, top to bottom that defense was loaded and now it's it's a whole bunch of guys that you hope could be decent and hope could work out, but it's going to be a long road, I think, up for that group. I'll be if they play a bunch of man coverage and that's how they live, I'll be curious what Shaq Griffin looks like after playing in Seattle, you know, for the last few years and playing in that scheme. Does he look different? Because they paid him like a top tier corner. Yeah. And I think they're betting on the traits. You, know, you talk about speed. That's exactly what they're doing at that spot. Tyson Campbell runs a 4-4-40. You know, those are the types of players they're trying to add on the back end. Whether it works or not, I have absolutely no idea. But you can understand the plan, at least at that position. All right. One guy you cannot wait to watch on the Jaguars this fall. I mean, it's Trevor Lawrence, right? I yeah. Mean, I mean, like, it. <laughs> look, it's, it's Trevor Lawrence. It's, it's, that's the only answer. And I'm, I apologize to the other 52 guys on the active roster, but it's Trevor Lawrence. Yeah. I mean, it, it, I cannot wait to see what he looks like. And there were some throws in the preseason that even if it was a little bit uneven, even the touch on the ball he put to the left corner in that last preseason game and just the ability for him to shape some of his throws, you know, from kind of weird platforms, just not even on the move, but just from strange arm angles. I mean, he's a rare, rare talent as a thrower. And we know that about him. We knew that about him coming in. And I think you saw even some flashes of that in the preseason. You know, Nate wrote about it. And and I agree. I mean, it's there. He is clearly one of the more talented pure passers to come along in a while. And it's 6'6 and the way that he can move. I think that we forget about some of that because of all the intrigue about Trey Lance and Justin Fields and just this group overall and the fact that it's happening in Jacksonville on a bad team. But this guy could be a really special quarterback. And he's a really special quarterback prospect. All right. Biggest X factor for you on the Jags. All right. It's urban. 
it's the Urban Meyer experience, as you said, to kick this off, because um, no head coach in the league is going to be under kind of more scrutiny, has more pressure in terms of like what he's going to do on a daily basis. I mean, in the last, what, three or four months, I guess, dating back to May, he's already been fined individually for breaking rules, um, contact rules. He is uh, under investigation now for saying the wrong thing about the cuts. So this is clearly an adjustment for him. And I think some of that stuff will get worked out as he's trying to bring like, you know, figure out how he molds his identity as a lifelong, lifelong college football coach to what the NFL is asking of him. But, you know, he, He's such just like an out oversized personality that we have to be watching. This isn't like Matt Rule. I mean, no, we're not talking about Matt Rule's continued adjustment from college to the NFL. It's just because Urban Meyer has so much more stuff with him. So for me, it's it's Urban and everything that he's bringing and if it's going to work. I think that makes total sense. Minus CJ Henderson, just because it's been such an eventful offseason for him. He was gone for a while. Apparently, he finished camp pretty strong. If he can be somebody for them after some of the mystery around him over the course of the last few months, that's big. You know, if that can, he can be somebody that you spent a first round top 10 pick on last year and he does settle into a role there and becomes kind of a foundational piece. That would be huge. I don't know if that's going to happen. I don't know what the chances are of that happening, but I do know it will go a long way in them building up that secondary pretty early. All right, let's get to our last team here. The Houston Texans. I cannot remember a roster like this. Can you? Yeah, I mean, when we've there's been some really bad teams it's in the not NFL bad. from time to time. It's just weird. I don't. Yeah, I don't know. It's not about quality. It's just the type of roster they've assembled. So, as our Aaron Reese at the Athletic pointed out, there are 30 new players on the 53 man roster from last year. 21 of them are on one year deals. This is just a team full of guys that. You you remember from other teams like this is full of a team full of Desmond Kings and Malik Collinses and Justin Brits, just people who have been serviceable starters other places. The entire roster is made up of those guys, and it's hard to do a, a standard traditional preview of a team in this much of a holding pattern. Like they're just playing for twenty twenty two. Like that's exactly what the Texans are doing right now. It's it's bizarre. I mean, you have to somehow talk about their weird quarterback situation. Um, I don't know if weird is even the accurate word for it. But yeah, it's just it's unprecedented is I think is yeah. the way to is the way to say it. Yeah. And your um, you know, your assessment of that kind of these journeyman guys, I think a lot of them on offense, I do think when we talk about talent deficiencies, I think that's fair on defense. I think there's um there are a few of those journeymen that are there on defense, but um it's rough. They were a bad, they were a really bad defense last year, and they brought back a few of their best players from that defense. Obviously, not JJ Watt, but you know, some of their starters. And it's still it's rough. It's like a really, really rough defensive roster. I mean, Lovey Smith is the defensive coordinator for this team, which is strange to me. I mean, it's strange for a lot of people, but very strange to me with my history with Lovey Smith. I guess corner could potentially be a relative strength. With Terrence Mitchell and Desmond King, you know, Lonnie Johnson has apparently had a solid camp. Positional, I think he's playing safety now, but in certain packages, is that going to be kind of the baseline of their coverage? I think pass rush is going to be really hard to come by. You know, they went out and traded for Shaq Lawson and then traded him again because he wasn't playing very well. You know, Whitney Merciless is still there, but 
it's just really, really hard to find a path to them even being an average defense. On offense, I mean, Tyrod Taylor is playing quarterback for this team. When's the last time we saw Tyrod Taylor as a starter? I don't know what to expect there. You know, Brandon Cooks is still a good player, but you know, we have five running backs on this team. I think Nico Collins has a physical profile to potentially emerge as a guy. They traded up to get him. But again, everything is in a holding pattern here. And a huge part of that is what's happening with Deshaun Watson. You wrote about that recently. Is there any update on what's happening there, how they're handling this that you feel like people should know about? Yeah. I mean, it's just a really bizarre situation where, you know, we kind of, a lot of us who kind of cover the league and like the the ins and outs of like the league and know all the rules and the policies and all the really boring stuff that people don't care about, but that, you know, ultimately matters when the way rosters are built and the league runs. We kind of thought that once we got here to week one, there would be some sort of not resolution, but some sort of guidance about what was going to happen with Deshaun Watson. And there is none. He is on the 53-man roster. He is the fourth string quarterback. He's kind of practicing. He's been sometimes on the field, sometimes not. Um, so it's like a kind of a de facto paid suspension where he's around and they're paying him to not play. Um, but the league has not intervened. The league has not stepped in Roger Goodell and said, we're going to put him on the commissioner's exempt list. Um, you know, there's a lot of, you know, if you read the letter of the policy of the commissioner exempt list and the personal conduct policy where it covers sexual assaults, those sorts of areas, you could see why they haven't said anything yet. But what what I wrote last week is that the NFL is trying to apply precedent to an unprecedented situation, and it's made everybody look really, really bad. And part of that is that because he's on the active roster as kind of just a guy who could potentially play, we're having all these other football conversations about him and about trade compensation and pick protection and no, no trade clauses. And where would he waive that? What, where would he like to play? And it's like, wait, 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 wait. Let's, we should not be having any of these football conversations about Deshaun Watson right now. And I don't really care that this hasn't happened before, that Roger Goodell hasn't put a guy who only has civil complaints officially filed against him on the commissioner's exempt list. He has 22 of them. Like you have to figure out a way to do something to protect yourself and to protect the Texans. And David Culley, who is in an impossible situation right now. Yeah, I mean, unprecedented is the word. We've never seen anything like this. And it it makes it hard to talk about this team because there's no way to know where they're going to go and when they're going to try to go there and what they're going to do with him and what they should do with him. It, It makes it really difficult to understand what they are as a football team in 2021 and then even into 2022. I mean, I feel weird even like talking about who we want to watch on this team because of all the things to consider. I mean, I guess the one guy I can't wait to watch is Nico Collins because he's the one guy they made a play for this offseason. You know, he's the one guy they went out and made a huge effort to go get in the draft by trading up to get him. But there aren't really that many other guys here. I mean, again, this team is really they would if they could sim the season and just get to next spring, I think they probably would. And maybe the NFL PA would sign off on that because then all of these guys aren't going to get hurt. They'd still get their checks. Um, I'll say the one guy I want to watch, Justin Reed, because maybe he can uh, handle some more kickoffs. That's right? where we are with this team. I was, exci- I was excited to see that. That was great. That was a nice little viral clip. On that note, that's all we got for the AFC South. Lindsay, as always, thank you. Thank you guys for listening. Really appreciate it. Please rate and review the podcast on your podcast platform of choice. Please subscribe to The Athletic. I'm writing twice 
this week. I'll have a piece coming out tomorrow and on Friday is the plan. Saying it here is going to make me hold myself to it, which is probably a bad idea. We will be back tomorrow with Mitchell Schwartz doing the AFC West, his first appearance on the podcast. If you guys have not heard, Mitchell is going to be on every single week during the season to do a guest spot with us to get a little player's perspective on the show that we did not have last year. It's part of our revamped new season two schedule. Very excited about that. I will forgive Mitchell Schwartz for taking my AFC West spot. I figure his Super Bowl ring and his intimate knowledge of the Chiefs offense makes that okay. And other teams' defenses. It felt like a waste (laughs) to have him do the AFC South. All right. Guys, thank you so much for listening. We will be back tomorrow. Talk to you soon. This was The Athletic Football Show.